Mark chapter 14. On Saturdays, often, if there's not some real uh, significant plan for our day, uh, my wife and I will say to each other in the morning, what's on your list today? And uh, if we are thinking about something, we'll share that. And... Uh, you know, kind of formulate a little bit of a plan today. Saturday is the only day that we really have uh, together during the week, so we think about that. And yesterday, she came walking from the kitchen while I was coming out of the bedroom. She goes, uh, I have uh, an idea for an inside project for us today. And we've been kind of cleaning out uh, the office room. I thought, oh, it's probably something about that or whatever. And she goes, yeah, we could fix the faucet on the kitchen sink. <laughs> uh, she broke it yesterday morning. My wife is really strong. And this is about 12 years old. <laughs> so, uh, said, okay, yeah, we've got to fix the kitchen sink and you know, when the, Fern, when the Ferndale water was bad there for a couple of years, that, that faucet really got gummed up. It didn't work right, and, and I knew I was going to have to change it anyway. So, so uh, you know, I, I had this surgery here about three months ago, and I really haven't done much. But a couple of weeks ago, I started to feel strong, and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm go, going for it. I have a, a wonderful son-in-law who's very handy, and... Uh, you know, I could call him and stand there and give him orders, but I said, you know, I'm, I'm going for it. I'm going in. And uh, got under there and took everything out and took stuff apart. And, and I'm telling you what, I got that thing off, and it was not easy. And it was the thrill of victory. <laughs> Can I get an amen or something there? Come on now. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be committed to work on plumbing. <laughs> I, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we went to the store. We went to two stores and bought two faucets, and we got them home and opened them up, and they were, I called up my, my favorite plumber friend, and he goes, don't put those in, and I could look at him and I say, yeah. So it's still not fixed till tomorrow, so maybe next week you'll get the end of the story. But I got the hard part done. I I persevered. The thrill of victory. I know what commitment means when it comes to plumbing. When the faucet is in and no water leaks, I have been committed all the way to the end. A little more challenging to understand, what does it mean to be genuinely committed to Christ? The apostles, the, or the disciples who we came to call the apostles, they thought they were committed they made some statements about commitment, but they had some tough lessons to learn. During this time from, the, from, from the, the meal that Jesus had a little over a week before his crucifixion, on through the crucifixion and the resurrection, they had some things to learn. And we're going to follow them as they learn a little bit about commitment in Mark 14, starting in verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread... When they killed the Passover lamb, you know that famous picture we see, we call it the Last Supper. That's what he's talking about here. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, 
Where do you want us to go and prepare that we may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and eat, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? Literally they said, It isn't I, is it? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to them and they drank all of it. They all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise, we will go all the way with you. We are absolutely committed to you. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply dis distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, for all things are possible for you, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, and he spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Remember, an hour ago, we will go with you to the death. And he comes back, and they're going, sorry. Verse 39, he went away. When he returned, he found them asleep, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. 
The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with the swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as, they, as soon as they had come, immediately he went up to him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. We'll drop down to verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again, and, he began to say to, and she began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again, and a little later those who stood by said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech or your accent shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you are speaking. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. We often think of Peter, but the, the, the problem of commitment goes beyond Peter to all of the disciples. Peter gives us some particular lessons. We want to try to understand some things about commitment to Christ from this, from this story. And, and no, we're not going to go into detail on all of the facets of it. We want to just look at the elements of commitment and understand, first of all, that commitment to Christ requires obedience, not enthusiasm. Now, now I know in writing that, I'm in danger of saying I want people to be dull and unenthusiastic and not excited about serving the Lord. You listen all the way till the end of the point, then you understand what I'm saying. And look at verse 18 through 20. Jesus said, somebody here is going to betray me. Jesus makes an astonishing statement. These guys have been together for three years. When we read in John, as he talks back, he, 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 John wrote his gospel after the fact, as they all did, and he looked back and he talked about Judas being a betrayer and, and stealing from the money box. That was all in retrospect. At the time, they didn't know any of that. All they know is they've been 12 guys together with Christ for, for three years. They've, 
They've gone places, they've done things, they've seen things, it's been incredible. And now he sits down and says, one of you is going to betray me. And they respond with humble concern, as well they should. They proceeded with the meal, and the warning kind of got pushed aside. And then he changes the warning. We know that that warning was particularly for Judas, But then the warning changes a little bit in verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They they had the Passover meal in a a room, in a house, if you will. Then they go out. They're going to spend the night um, sleeping outside. That was a common thing. That's what people did. And uh, we read here in verse 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you, All of you are going to be made to stumble because of me this night. And then he quotes an Old Testament prophecy. He knew that it was coming. And he warned them. Jesus warned them. And who should respond first and loudest but Peter? No way. Never happened. I'm way more committed than all of the other 11. I'm in this for the distance. What makes this especially foolish of Peter to contradict Jesus, if you will, is this statement that he had made earlier in the time of ministry when Peter said, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, I'm talking to the Son of God, and he just told me something, and I'm going to respond to him and basically say, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) If God appeared here in flesh today and you knew it was God and he said to you, thus and so, would you stand up and say, sorry, bud, you don't know what you're talking about. See, we can't even imagine that. But obviously Peter didn't fully grasp who Jesus was. He knew he was the Messiah, this one promise from the Old Testament. And it could be that in him referring to him as the son of God, he doesn't, he's thinking, well, the Messiah is a, you know, quote Mark, son of God, and he didn't fully grasp who Jesus was. Peter believed in Jesus, and yet he was comfortable contradicting him. John gives us a detail about this episode that's really important, too. Simon Peter said that when Jesus said, you can't follow me now, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, key word, now. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. This is an important prophetic reference because Peter became a martyr for his faith. There's a little more talk about this at the end of the Gospel of John. But he said clearly, you cannot follow me now. When my kids were little, my son, the oldest, he was probably three, three and a half at the time, he wanted a kiss goodbye from dad in the morning when I left. I would try to, they'd be sleeping. I'd try to roll the car out of the driveway. He'd come running out, no, no, no. Gotta have this kid. Then everything's okay, you know. Jesus says, Peter, you cannot come with me. You stay there. I'm going here. Peter said, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus should have said, asked and answered. 
I told you no. Peter won't take no for an answer. Essentially, Peter said to Jesus, you're wrong about me, and I know what needs to happen here. Look at verse 46. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest. Again, John fills in the detail. It's Peter who pulled out the sword. These people come to arrest Jesus, and Peter thinks, not on my watch. But it was supposed to be. It was supposed to happen, and Peter was not supposed to interfere because Jesus said, I'm going, and you cannot come with me now. So Jesus said, put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Maybe if Peter had been praying with Jesus during that time, he'd have understood that. Peter thought he knew what should be done. He thought, he knew that this Old Testament Messiah was going to become the king of Israel. And so perhaps Peter is thinking, okay, now is the time to draw the sword and go for it and set this man on the throne. I don't know what, but he must have been thinking something like that. Peter thought he knew what should be done, even though Jesus was saying no. And this is where I come back to that idea of enthusiasm. Commitment to Christ is not demonstrated by emotionally driven, humanly conceived acts of service. Oh, I'm so excited to do this for the Lord. Okay, let's check and see if this is an act of obedience that God clearly has told you he wants you to do. See, Peter was enthusiastic. (laughs) We see that throughout those three years. We see him stepping up. You know, here's Jesus walking across the water. If it's you, Jesus, let me come to you. Boom, boy, he's out there. He's enthusiastic. God doesn't need your enthusiasm. Now, again, I'm all for being excited. I get a little excited when I preach once in a while. But it needs to be God's excitement coming out of God's truth. We need to be excited about doing what God has said to do and not to do what he has said not to do. Jesus said, Peter, not now. And Peter should have said, okay. But he didn't. He pushed on. He pushed on, and it didn't come out well. Sometimes we don't want what God has clearly laid in front of us. And so we push ahead with our own will, even contrary to God's will, believing that we're so committed to God that we're gonna do something for him, and he's up in heaven saying, just, just, just do this. I had a man come into my office at my church in Seattle, Try to get me interested in his missionary work. And you, you all know I love missionaries. And he was going to do a missionary work in the Seattle area to a particular ethnic group. That was his burden and what he believed God had called him to do. But what you don't know is we never have a missionary in this church that I don't know ahead of time. And I know about them and who they are and what's going on because who knows? Can't just, oh, sure, you say you're something, go ahead. 
So I'm, I'm listening to this fellow, I'm asking him questions, and, and, and after a while, I begin to kind of smell fish there, you know. I just thought, something's just not right here. I had asked him if he was married, had a family, and so on. No, never been married, got close a couple of times, and so on. Okay, okay. And this was in before the days of the internet, so it was a little harder to do some of this, but I remembered, uh, I'd had an experience like this in my, when my senior pastor had to do this with a, a charlatan who came to our church. It was an interesting experience there, too. But this fellow was telling me things, so I'm remembering the details, I'm memorizing the details. And when he left, I got on the, tele, on the telephone and called information. How old is that? And said, can you give me a phone number for this church and this city? And, and I called there, and the janitor was there, only person working on that day and that time. And I said, I got this brother here, so-and-so here, and, and he's talking about doing this ministry, and he says he's never been married. Oh, he's married. His wife and kids are still here in our church. Smell the fish. So I, I can't remember if we talked again in person or I called him on the phone, and I just kind of led him along for a while, and I said, uh as we'll read here in a minute, what is this bleating of the sheep that I hear? You know, what? I said, I've heard about uh, you have a wife and kids down in California. Well, uh, you know, the Lord has called me to this ministry and they didn't want to come, so I came anyway. You know what, I got news to you. Any of you who feel called into the ministry, if God can call you, he can call your wife too. And your kids I believe that with all my heart. God is not so weak that you have to break his word in order to do his work. Jesus said, Peter, not now. Peter should have focused on the word now and he should have went, ooh, this isn't gonna come out good. But no, he's all excited, so he's doing something for God. <sighs> Following Christ is not about your excitement to do something for God, but about your obedience to what God has clearly called you to do in his word. Simple obedience to the plain word of God might not look like a very significant thing compared to what you might dream up as something big and important. But it is a big thing because it's how God leads us. God leads us through his word, and his word leads you to the church, and the church is part of that. And so if God wants you here or there or there, he will lead you through the word and through the body of Christ, and you don't have to take things into your own hand and do things in a, just out of your own enthusiasm. Here's a guy in the Old Testament who, who got this really messed up, and it cost him dearly. Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. Samuel's the prophet, if you don't know. Saul's the king. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I am committed to the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord spoke to me last night. And he said, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? 
And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission. The Lord specifically told you, go, utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Now watch the answer. It's, it's, it's the same thing that happens today. Saul said, but I have obeyed, and I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things, which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I know what the Lord told me to do, but I have devised a way to do something different to honor him. Has the Lord as great delight in a burnt offering, in an act of worship, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is not better. It, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or to listen is better than the fat of rams. God tells us exactly how he wants us to serve him. And we can't go out and create some new thing, some different thing, because we're all excited about it while ignoring the plain truth. That's what Peter did. He ignored the warning. He ignored the instruction. He followed his own path. And the end was epic failure. Why did Peter fail so miserably? He failed because commitment to Christ requires humility, not self-confidence. Look at verse 30. Jesus said to him, to Peter, after he made this great claim, verse 29, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. I'm way more committed than everybody else. Jesus said, surely I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. This was not just a problem on Peter's fault but peter led the rest into foolishness peter boldly claims he will go the distance with christ and what ends up happening he does not go the distance with christ um follow along with me a little bit farther they came to a place verse 32 called gethsemane Sit here while I pray. We've read the story. You stay. I'm going to go pray. You watch with me and pray. Watch with me and pray. Look at verse 37. He came and found them sleeping. Simon, are you sleeping? Reminds me of a, a day in, in theology class in, in Bible college. There was a, a, a young fellow who was especially friendly with the president of the school, and the president of the school came to teach our class and he got up there and got his notes situated. And this fellow was accustomed to sitting right there and always slumping down in his seat and, and kind of half snoozing during the class. It was an awesome class. I don't know why he slept. But he, you know, the president comes in. This guy <laughs> leans down, gets ready to sleep, and he goes over, you're not sleeping today, mister. Not you. You know, you, you call yourself my friend. Peter said, I'm your greatest committed follower. 
Verse 37, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Here's the key, verse 38, the warning, another warning. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter's spirit was willing to be committed, but his flesh was weak. So Jesus says, watch and pray. Bold, Peter boldly claimed he would go the distance. Then Christ asked him for support. Watch and pray with me. And what happens? Peter falls asleep. Jesus warns Peter again. And he says, the only way you will avoid sin is to ask for God's help. Watch and pray that you fall not into temptation. What was the real problem with Peter? Peter didn't know how weak he was. Peter did not know how weak he was. He thought, oh, I am Peter. Jesus changed my name from stone to big rock. I'm the guy who always speaks out. I'm ready to go. Peter did not know how weak he was. Jesus knew how weak his human flesh was. Listen to the way Luke describes this scene. When, when Jesus prays, we get some detail here. Father, if it's your will, this is Jesus talking. If it's your will, take this cup, this, this ex set of experiences I'm about to go through. Take it away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down from the ground. Medical experts have said this is possible to be under such anxiety that the, the, the blood actually goes right through the capillaries and through the skin. That's some pretty intense concern. What is Jesus doing on the night before the culmination of his ministry, the, 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 the next three days, the crucifixion and resurrection will be the culmination of his ministry. What's he doing? He is praying. He's saying, oh God. And he's crying out to God. Alexander McLaren put it well in his commentary. Darkness ringed him around, but there was a rift in it right overhead. Prayer was his refuge as it must be ours. Jesus urged the disciples to watch in prayer, that is to pray through the time of temptation. How do you know when you've prayed long enough? The temptation is gone, the anxiety is gone, whatever it is you've prayed through, watch and pray. To fail to watch and pray is to assume there is no danger. I think one of our greatest problems, our greatest hindrances in prayer is we don't know how weak we are. Peter didn't know how weak he was. The other apostles didn't know how weak they were. God doesn't seem to think that we know ourselves that well. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, not in himself. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green. This is a kind of a summary of Psalm 1 if you want to read the details. And that Jeremiah is really quoting that. Nor will he cease from yielding fruit, but the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you get that context? 
You'll be blessed if you trust in the Lord, but if you trust in your own heart, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Why should we pray about everything? Because we don't know ourselves or the world around us or what God has in mind. And so if we really want to reap God's result in our life, we become people of prayer saying, you know, God, I'm getting ready to go to work today, or I have this responsibility at church today, my family here, and my, my, my job there, my this, my that. I'm, I'm, all of these things are concerns to me. Whatever is a concern should be a matter of prayer. Whatever is part of your life should be a matter of prayer. Peter did not know how weak he was, but Jesus did. And he said, Peter, here's what you need to do. You need to watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. We ought to assume that we need God always. Always. That's why Jesus, remember this from the, what we call the Lord's Prayer, really the disciples' prayer, the model of prayer. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why would Jesus tell us to pray about temptation if we don't need to pray about temptation? I finished reading that book, The Disciplines of Grace. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. Anne, are you here today? Anne Hubbard? Is that book in our library? She's in the nursery. I would assume we might have that book in the nursery. In the nursery. In the, <laughs> might be in the nursery. She might be reading it. Anyway, the library. Awesome book. Awesome book, and the disciplines of grace. And he, he makes a comment that I haven't thought about before. He, he says, pray specifically for specific temptations you know you're prone to. In other words, don't wait. Don't wait till here I'm walking through my life and oh, here's that temptation that's hard for me. In the morning when you're having your prayer time, say, God, you know I'm given to this temptation. Please protect me from that temptation. Peter should have been watching and praying, saying, oh God, I, I want to be so 100% committed to Christ, but you know what happened on the water, and you, you know what happened just now with that, with the, or was, well, it's going to happen with the sword. You know what happened these other times. And, oh God, help me. And, and oh God, I want to go and do, but he said I shouldn't follow him now. And he should have been wrestling that out in prayer. Because if he had, he might not have been famous for those three denials. Do you know those three denials don't play a part in the redemptive plan of God other than by example, don't get me wrong. All of these events though, the betrayer, the, the kiss, all of these things were prophesied, but Peter's thing is a separate thing, and, and he said, Peter, watch and pray so that this doesn't happen. Peter said, I got this, I got my sword, I'm gonna take a little nap. Everything's going to be fine. We need to pray for the awareness of temptation. We need to pray to avoid temptation, to have the wisdom, to have the will to do it. You know, I, I, and I know my schedule is flexible, and I, so I know this is a little unfair for me to say this. I get that. But I hear people say that their schedule keeps them from significant times of prayer. Could I challenge you to think differently about that? Here's what I want to say. Don't think about the time involved in prayer. Don't think about your schedule. Think about this. 
Stop evaluating your busyness and start recognizing your neediness and your weakness and your susceptibility to falling into sin and say, I need to pray so I don't fall into temptation. And just think of putting it into your schedule as a, as, as a protection that you would put in place, like putting on your seatbelt or whatever else you would do to protect your life. Peter did not know his own strength. He was not humble. He was self-confident, and the result was failure. The third thing that needed to be learned about commitment was this. Commitment to Christ requires service without sin. Now, it occurred to me as I wrote that down that some of you would say, is that the most profound thing you could come up with in a week of thinking about it? Yep. That is the most profound thing I could say. Peter refused to listen to Christ's instruction. He essentially, I mean, now, now let's just verbalize it this way. God's instruction is God's will. When we do God's will, that's righteousness. When we don't do God's will, that's sin. So Peter heard the definition of righteousness. This, 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 not this, this, and this. And he said, I'm going to do it a different way. That means he was planning to serve God with sin. Now when we say it that way, we go, whoa, that, that ain't right. Yeah, that isn't right. Peter refused to obey Christ's warning about denying him. Peter refused to listen to Christ's instruction about not following him. He refused to obey Christ's exhortation to watch and pray. Instead of obeying, Peter decided on his own path. Matthew adds a little detail here. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see what was going to happen. Now, what's foolish about that? How many times had Jesus told the disciples, over the course of three years, he told them a number of times, increasingly so, that what's going to happen in the end is I am going to die. That's going to be the end. And when Peter saw this happening, he should have went, ding, 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 this is what Jesus has been talking about. But he thought, no, Jesus... Jesus is supposed to be the king, and I'm going with him. I'm going to see what happens. He had his own plan for serving the Lord, ignoring God's plan. He went where he wasn't supposed to go, and then what happened? Look at verse 67. And when she, the, the servant girl, saw Peter, she looked at him and said, You were with Jesus of Nazareth, but he denied it. What do we call that? A lie. Verse 69, the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, but he denied it again. What is that? A lie, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cut your losses, right? There you go. He lied again. And a little bit later, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. You have a southern accent, or in this case, a northern accent. And he began to curse and swear. Did I put this up there? No, I didn't. The word curse, when we see the words curse and swear, all we think about is profanity. That's not what he did. The word curse means to call down a curse from God in regard to his honesty. In that day, they would say, if I'm not telling the truth, may God strike me dead right here. 
You know, we say that kind of thing today, ha ha, we joke about it. They would say that thing as a way to verify their honesty. He, 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 he basically said, you know, whatever. He brought down a curse from God on his own head if he's not telling the truth. How much worse do you want to make this, Peter? And then the word swear is used. And the word swear meant in the Bible times to invoke God as a witness to his honesty. I swear I'm telling the truth. We still say that today. It's, it's a way that we try to strengthen the belief in our honesty. So he brings down, he calls down curses from God if he's not telling the truth. He calls on God to be his witness of the truth of him denying the Son of God. It is messed up. And remember, he said, I will go with you to the death. Translate that, I am your most committed servant. And I just want to say this, you cannot do the Lord's work while sinning. I'm going to do this great thing for God. Of course, I'm going to have to lie and do some other things, but I'm going to do a great thing for God. You cannot. You remember the Old Testament sacrifice requirement? When they were going to bring a lamb or, or any other thing, it had to be without blemish. Without blemish. Now, I know I'm not, a, I'm not an animal guy. I'm not an expert like our, our friends here are. I know there's no such thing as a perfect animal. But there's some that to our eye look that way. And that's what God was saying. This animal has to be without blemish. Now what was he trying to picture? He was trying to picture a sacrifice with no sin involved. And when Jesus came, they said he was a lamb without blemish. He was truly perfect. But that, that animal pictured that perfection. Later in the Old Testament, when they were, they were not following God well, one of the prophets criticized them and said, are you going to bring the lame and the halt or the, you know, the deformed animals to God's sacrifice? He said, offer it to your governor as, a sacri- as an honor. And of course, they wouldn't do that. So the Old Testament picture was bring a perfect sacrifice. That image really goes forward into the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, now when you come to drink the juice and eat the bread, you do that in a way that is worthy of the Lord. What does it mean to be worthy? It means you don't have any sin. You're not coming and saying, well, I'm gonna do this religious thing. I know I'm doing it with this and this and this in my heart, but I'm gonna do it anyway because it's a religious thing. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, no, you know, this image of the sacrifice and you you need to come. You are the sacrifice at the Lord's Supper. You are the person saying, I'm here worshiping you. You cannot do the Lord's work while sinning. That's why God gives us so many plain definitions of what sin is. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, to which you yourselves also once walked, but now put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, don't lie, since you put off the old man. All of those are just examples, it's not the whole list, about how we are supposed to be committed to God, and, and especially as regard to serving God. We come with a clean heart. 
We say, I'm, I'm here to serve you, God. I'm here to sing songs of praise. I'm here to lead songs of praise. I'm here to pray for our brother John. I'm here to give my offering. I'm here to learn from God's word. I'm here to serve in the welcome room or minister to one another. I'm here with a clean heart. I, and to the best of my ability, I am a clean sacrifice for you. I was talking... I was talking to somebody who's close to me this week about a church that has a very wealthy member. Whenever they, whenever they have a need, they kind of subtly put that request out there and the big checks come in. It's a small church. With a wealthy member who is a lesbian and everybody in town knows it, the people in church know it. They just kind of don't talk about it too much. Not the first time I've seen something like that. I think, oh, are we as a church going to come and, and say, oh, we're serving God, we're doing God's work. Yeah, we know there's sin. Uh, that's what the Corinthians were doing. We've been studying about that in the first Corinthians. In our hearts, we've got to come to God with a clean heart. Peter Peter didn't set out to sin, I know that, but he ignored God's instruction and that just became a downward spiral in his life. If we would call ourselves committed to Christ, we need to obey, to pray, to serve without sin and when we fail, commitment to Christ means repentance, not surrender. Repentance, not surrender. Look at verse 29 uh, of this passage, Mark 14. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be made to stumble. Now look at verse 72 of this passage. A second time the rooster crowed. Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, and it's a quote, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Now, turn with me over to John 21. A few pages down the road there in your Bible to John 21. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. Peter and some of, some of the disciples, not all of them, are out fishing. And Jesus comes. Jesus comes. Um, verse 5, verse 4. When the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They could see somebody, they didn't know who it was. And Jesus said to them, children! Have you got any food? And they answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to drop because of the multitude of fish. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, he never names himself in his own epistle here, or his gospel. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat. <laughs> About 200 cubits dragging the net with the fish. And we go on to watch Jesus work through a process of restoration 
to which Peter submitted himself. Peter by this time knew, I messed up. And Jesus comes after him and Peter repents. He has this tremendous sorrow and Luke tells us one more little detail that makes this so heart-wrenching. Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. They were in this, Peter was in a courtyard. Jesus was probably in an upper room, perhaps being moved from place to place. And, and Jesus knew what was gonna happen, of course, and Peter is saying the words and the rooster is crowing and Jesus looks at him. Oh, wow. That's gotta be one of the saddest, that's gotta be one of the saddest things recorded about disciples in, in, in the Gospels or the rest of the New Testament. Uh, if you are a person who walks with Christ, you know how bad you feel when you sin anyway. And for Christ to be there physically and look you in the eye, oh man. Peter felt horrible about his sin, and that's good. It is good to feel guilty. Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Peter had the sorrow of God Judas had the sorrow of the world. Judas was sorry for the results. He was sorry for getting caught, but he wasn't sorry in his relationship with God. A few days after the resurrection, as we read in John, Jesus met with them, and the, the net discussion to Peter is in verse 22 when he says, You follow me. And I can imagine Peter going, okay, I get that. He didn't get it before then, but he got it then. Judas could have repented, but he let his sin overcome him. Oh, I'm a failure. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, look what I've done. All that true. All of that true. He was a failure. He was a disgrace. He was a betrayer. But God is gracious no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think it is, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners and Christ stands ready to forgive us all. Peter wanted that forgiveness and he repented of his sin. He admitted his sin and turned from it. Peter was moved by his epic sin to come back to Christ at the first chance he got. Do you, do you see that? It's Christ. Boom! He's in the water headed toward the shore. Judas gave up. Peter got right and moved on. And of course, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, Peter, Peter stood up and didn't flinch for anybody because he was doing what God wanted him to do in the way God wanted him to do it. <sighs> a couple of months ago, Sue and I were able to attend church with our daughter Molly over in Wenatchee. She goes to a, uh, a church that is 
only a few years old and has a lot of young people in it. Uh, the, main, the primary pastors are younger guys. Uh, they do have one seasoned veteran who I think is helping them and keeping an eye on things. But uh, Molly's very involved in her church and, and uh, wanted us to meet the pastors and so on. The young man who spoke was one of the associate pastors. And so I went up afterwards to uh, say, hey, good job on this and a couple of thoughts about that. And uh, my responsibility as a man of God and, and mature man. But he said, Molly says you've been in the ministry a long time. How long have you been a pastor? I said, 37 years. And, and, and this next question would have never crossed my mind. How do you do that? Well, pretty much like this. And I'm not puffing myself up here, folks. I'm puffing up God. I did not survive 37 years righteous because of my own strength. God gives us the, the steps to walk in day by day. He gives you the same steps he gives me. And as we walk in those steps, we honor him, we serve him, we accomplish what he wants us to accomplish. Commitment means following Christ in simple obedience, humility, and consistency. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth, and I thank you for the example of Peter. I, I'm sorry he had to, to go through the difficulty he did. I can't imagine how hard it must have been to look into the eyes of Jesus. And I'm sure sorry for Judas. Boy, it would have been great to see him repent. And I'm sure thankful that you haven't given up on me or anybody who's sitting here. And so I just pray that you will help us to put that one foot in front of the other each day by day, day by day, in obedience to your simple will, not trying to create some great thing, but just trying to obey that simple thing. Father, if there's somebody here who's never started that walk of faith, help them open their eyes today. Help them to see how gracious Jesus is. Do your work among us today, Father, I pray in Christ's name, amen.